Are you interested in attending one of the field's largest gatherings of K-12 education innovators? The Aurora Institute Symposium 2023 promises community lessons about education innovation from the field and the latest research and policy to support education transformation. We know that after attending, you will leave equipped to take immediate action in advancing next-generation learning designs. This event will take place October 15th through the 17th, 2023 in Palm Springs, California. You can find out more at aurora-institute.org. Welcome, you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast and I am Nate McLennan. Many states, districts, and schools are talking about competencies, specifically durable or transferable skills, and rightfully so. While high school and college graduates may earn a diploma, employers continue to report a deficiency in these transferable and durable skills like leadership, collaboration, communication, and creativity when they hire new employees. So three big questions emerge of this challenge. The first one is, which competencies should we focus on and should there be variability regionally? And then the second question is, how do we provide opportunities for students to learn these competencies within their education experience? And third, how do we assess proficiency in these competencies? In the podcast today, I'm excited to talk to two leaders who are tackling this third question, which is incredibly complex. So how can we effectively assess competencies that describe these durable skills? Amit Sevak is the CEO of ETS, the largest private educational assessment organization in the world. And Tim Knowles is the 10th president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Both Amit and Tim are long-term education leaders and entrepreneurs who have focused their careers on creating better opportunities for more people through education. Amit and Tim, so excited to have you on the podcast today and talk about this new partnership that you two have formed with your orgs and excited to talk about assessment of competency. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. All right, so I like to start with a question about your journey and and you all have been speaking widely and, and, and are on a lot of videos and a lot of podcasts but I'm specifically interested around what was your first professional experience in the education sector? What, what, what was the spark that got you going and anything that you carry with you from then that informs your work today? So maybe Amit will start and then Tim, you follow. Well, Nate, thanks for having us on the show. We're looking forward to talking about this really important topic. My first professional experience in education was in the late 1990s, I was working as a management consultant in Boston. I was working at Bain and Company. And I was working on a whole range of clients, telecommunications, retail banking, the auto industry. And one day, a individual start, who was starting up a charter school came into our office. And she had mentioned that she was just getting started and that she was trying to create one of the first charter schools in Massachusetts. And she'd gotten the approval to launch this school. And she was really looking for consulting help. Uh, and so at the time, I and a couple of my colleagues thought, wow, this would be a great opportunity to apply management consulting principles. How do you divine, uh, devise a strategy? Um, how do you recruit leadership? How do you think about differentiating that charter school versus the public schools in the area? And so as we started getting into it, we said, hey, yeah, we'd love to offer up uh, some 
number of hours, essentially to donate time uh, to, to help her out. And that project really inspired me because I got to apply management principles on how do you lead, how do you apply technology, how do you establish incentives, how do you build an operating system? And we started to apply that to the education space, this kind of blending of, of, of the business world with the education world. And that, that project uh, led us to an idea to launch a nonprofit, which we called Inspire, uh, which was specifically focused to help uh, first-time leaders in education uh, to get started. And over time, we were able to scale that up across multiple offices, multiple cities. And basically, it was uh, management consultants uh, donating five to 10 hours a week of their time to work on education-specific projects. What inspired me uh, with that was that it, it made me realize what's possible by mixing uh, the world of management and business with the world of education and nonprofits. It also really inspired me, Nate, uh, to really be seeking uh, to partner with entrepreneurial folks, with, with entrepreneurial-minded individuals, and that it is possible to do something disruptive and creative in education. So, you know, in some ways, the, the spirit of that still lives on in this new partnership that Tim and I are creating here uh, between our two organizations, ETS and Carnegie, this notion that we can start something new, start something disruptive, mix experiences from operating organizations like ETS with nonprofit mission-driven organizations like Carnegie and really together uh, try to innovate uh, in, a, in a new and scalable way. Thanks for sharing that. I, I imagine so early or early to mid 90s, you're in the, the beginning of the big charter boom. And there's a lot of educators who have been teachers and even principals, but then are starting their new schools. And no one really teaches you much about that in the ed schools, about education entrepreneurship. So I appreciate that that work and how it carries on. Tim, what about your journey? I started as a teacher of African history in Botswana um, before apartheid fell. Hmm. And, and so just to our south um, was one of the most problematic regimes in the world. Um, and my school and my students and my fellow teachers were, were very involved in the struggle in, in Southern Africa, South Africa in particular. And our school was in essence, on the, the Underground Railroad for the ANC that was was actually the African National Congress that was actually um, on the front lines of that struggle. So very early on, I got a sense that education at its heart was fundamentally emancipatory. And, and it, when done well, it was about much bigger things than... than um, than the, 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 the disciplinary knowledge um, or the particular lesson of the day. Um, it, it, it was uh, then about 20 or 30 years later when South Africa was free, I went on a trip to, to South Africa and, and met with extraordinary people who'd written the constitution, artists and, and, and um, activists who'd, who'd really been there throughout the struggle. And to a person, they said the people who moved the needle in South Africa were teachers and students. So that's my grounding. Uh, my grounding is that that everything we do has to have our eye on the larger prize. And and in terms of the partnership with ETS, it's it's really about that. It's can we 
can we propel millions more young people into in in our country underrepresented low income first generation young people into into purposeful lives and careers um, if we get the 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 core of of our educational enterprise right uh great yeah what an amazing connection to to bring forward and i i i do believe deeply sort of the educators and the young people first right that's that, that's how we we lift up great ideas so so then let's let's pivot now to this big partnership that you've announced uh it's a, it's two big organizations coming together for a common goal so when people ask you who what this thing is and you only have a minute or so so you don't have a long time um how can you explain it succinctly so Amit, how do you talk about ets's role in this and then tim carnegie's role in this we are looking to evolve education to become much more focused on skill development at its core that the future currency of education will be the skill not just time in the past the number of hours that one spent in a chair was largely the driver of did you progress in school whether it's k-12 or higher ed we call it credit hours or carnegie units in higher ed and similarly such units exist in the years of k-12 particularly high school and so we want to go from time to skill as the primary driver. And the way, Nate, I've been most visually explaining this is when we think about a transcript. Historically, when we think about a high school transcript or a college transcript, you've got your list of courses, you've got your grades, and you've got your attendance. And that, that piece of paper is essentially the reflection of your having progressed through and completed a certain level. We would like to propose a basis of transcript that's not around completion of courses that are largely time-based, but really a, a skills transcript, where, which is a reflection of what skills did you pick up and have been verified through rigorous assessments uh, during, your, during your journey in school. And so we're starting in K-12, and we anticipate to get into higher ed and beyond. And, but, but ultimately, it's about changing the paradigm from time to skill as the primary unit of educational progression. And, and to, for ETSs, you all are leaders of educational assessment. So can I presume that you're thinking about the assessment of those particular skills? And then, Tim, what's Carnegie? What's the, what's the role that Carnegie's playing in this partnership? <laughs> one, one thing, Nate, is... We, we got us into all this mess. <laughs> so, so we need to get us out of it. Literally in 1906, the Carnegie Foundation, by way of example, announced that a college degree, for example, would be 120 credits. And today, a college degree is 120 credits. It literally has not moved um, in, in over 100 years. So the that despite the fact that we've got we've had neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists and 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 psychologists learning scientists come along and say here's how you learn this is how we actually know you learn from solving real problems from from collaborating with your peers from experience experiential education dewey was talking about this almost that long ago um and yet the system hasn't changed the, the system has has held on to this fundamental currency of the uh, educational economy of time, as Amit was saying, um, equals learning. 
And we know that's not the case. So why Carnegie? Carnegie, um, in my view, has a responsibility to, to take it on. Uh, and, and my 30 second pitch is we know there are skills to echo a meet that, that are necessary and predictive of success in, in, in school and in work and in life. We know we don't have good ways to determine or detect whether whether young people possess those skills. So we're going to work hard to over the next decade, I suspect, to to make those skills that are necessary for success in school and work and life legible, legible to 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 students themselves, their developmental arc, to parents to educators, and also legible to the post-secondary sector and to employers. Um, and then we think we think the education sector can be a much, much more powerful engine for social and economic mobility. I get that. So that makes total sense to me. Well, it makes sense, and it also feels formidable, right? So we've been dealing with a 100-year uh, fortress of, of the Carnegie unit. And so do you sense that there's an opportunity here that's different from, say, 30 years ago or 60 years ago that we are at this because of what is it's technology, the openness of, of, um, of higher ed, the, the, the needs of employers that I mentioned earlier? I mean, is this a are we at a critical moment where this partnership is at the right time, right place to actually make it successful on this 10 year journey that you're going to embark to really flip the model, which is really what we're trying to do. And it's not an easy thing. As the late, great civil rights leader, John Lewis said, if not now, then when? And if not us, then who? You know, for us, both Tim and I feel very strongly that we're really in this to level the playing field. There are so many individuals throughout the United States and really throughout the world, especially post-pandemic, that are really seeing the cracks in the system. So we think the timing is is now because we think that right now people are really aware that school is just not producing the goods uh, on a on a broad scalable level. We're leaving too many people behind. And underrepresented communities are particularly suffering. Uh, lack of connectivity to good schools, lack of connectivity to quality teachers, lack of internet connectivity on a stable basis for hybrid or alternative forms of content. And so there's all of this inequity. And I think the country certainly, but I would argue this is really a global phenomenon that we're becoming more and more aware that the traditional school system structure of time as a principal driver is, is, is and, and really parents started feeling this uh, when you're trying to do homeschooling and you're seeing all of the breakdowns and content and hearing what's being taught and uh, seeing the reaction of your child. I felt this personally. Uh, with three kids uh, doing hybrid schooling uh, during the pandemic. And so I think there is there is a broad sense that we can do better, that we can do different. The other thing, Nate, that's driving this is the way in which technology is really ripping through, uh, where kids in elementary and middle school are really getting their primary content for so many learning topics through YouTube or through Snapchat or through TikTok. And you're seeing all of this uh, digitally enabled learning that's happening that's outside the classroom. So that's the pandemic, it's the inequities, 
It's the technology, particularly with AI now uh, ripping through the system, that I think we're all looking for something different. And so our proposal is that the solution is really going to focus on those type of skills that are ultimately uniquely human. Those type of skills, Nate, that regardless of where AI goes and how it starts to automate certain processes, handle certain problem solving, certain computation, certain pattern recognitions, that basically is what AI drives. That ultimately, even in that digital AI-enabled world, there are still certain fundamental skills that are power skills, durable skills, human skills. These are the skills of communication, collaboration, creative thinking that that are going to start to take on more and more importance. And so as Tim said, these are really the skills we want to help schools and teachers and parents start to really see their progress, uh, their, their students' progress and their own progress, because as adults and lifelong learners, as we all live longer lives, um, we're going to want to be seeing that kind of progression happening as well. So yeah, we think really the time is now. One, one other one other angle I would add, Nate, is um, about why now, um, is that across the country, schools and school systems and states have are developing these, these things called portraits of a graduate or portraits of a learner. And we've done some careful analysis across the country and, and looked globally um, with the help of the ETS research group um, to look at those, those portraits. And I, I think there's, 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 they're embedded in them is like an invisible American consensus about the purpose of schooling. There's red and blue states, purple states. The, the things that are common are, are these affective, behavioral, and cognitive skills. They are the river that runs through what, what parents and communities are saying we want our schools to produce. So I think um, in spite of the polarized nature of our political discourse, there is this um, pretty remarkable agreement that, that we need to our schools and our educational systems to be focused on these things. And, and, and the, the amazing thing about that consensus in my view is that it lines up with what predicts success. So it's, it's, it's actually not only what people in communities are saying they want for their young people, but, but also what will be good for them, particularly given the ambiguities uh, of the economy as we look forward. So so I'm. I think that's another reason for why now. Um, that that and and we've we spent a, a good deal of time in the last six or eight months talking with leaders from across the country, from many different stakeholder groups, um, teachers, state leaders, parents, um, civil rights organizations, and and there's there's a probably because of the pandemic. There's there's a vast number of people who are leaning in saying, how can we press go? We're interested in joining on this adventure. Yeah, it makes, you've answered a bunch of the questions that have been spinning around in our heads at Getting Smart for sure, is that we help organizations build portraits of graduates. I built one for the school that I was involved with and I'm seeing it in states and there's some states like, for example, Utah and South Carolina and others that are leading the way and really interesting models. And and I've always thought about this Venn diagram of overlap, like how much do these portraits all overlap? And, if, and certainly there's a lot of overlap. Do you think that in, in a country like the United States, where we have uh, such uh, um, 
state level control over the education systems with some Fed influence, but state level control. Do you have a sense that there's going to be a universally accepted set of these skills? Or do you think that there's going to be local, regional, statewide variation that will then tap into a larger database? We're trying to understand what that mix is. It going to be select from a bunch and choose a subset of, or will it be everybody adopts holistically? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Just quick, but um, the, 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 I think that's a, a really interesting question. We have to remember that like at the foundation of the American educational system is an idea called democratic localism. It's And we're not going to upend that. There are however many thousands of school systems, I think 19,000 or maybe more around the country that all put their stake in the ground. So in order to do this effectively in that context, we have to be doing it in a way that allows for local communities to 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 select the the skills that they think are most important, whether that's relative to their post secondary aims for their young people or their empl- or employment aims or both. Um, so we are going to build this certainly with with that kind of flexibility built in. So 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 people can find their priorities in the work um, rather than suggesting that there's a, a, a sort of consistent set of skills that everybody everywhere needs to focus on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that the way to think about the, the partnership in that, in that soup of uh, the American democratic decentralized approach, Nate, is that each state, each school district can have some flexibility and ought to have that flexibility. That, that's, that, that's a key part of how, how our education is set up. And I think, Nate, it's particularly important that they do, because I think that if we think about where we're sitting today, a, a baby is born today. What are the skills that we as society, that we as Americans want that baby to have? What, what's the job in 18 years or 20 plus years that that baby will be doing? What is the type of civic engagement we want that baby to have? What is the digital literacy requirement? And I would argue that we don't know. We actually don't know because the the the, the pace of change that's happening in our society, in the way we are deploying technology, our media ecosystem, the way our political institutions are responding to all of these forces, there's, the, there's a lot of ambiguity in a way that perhaps 30 years ago or 20 years ago, we would have a little bit more clarity. Uh, And certainly 500 years ago, we would know um, 20 years out what the probability of skills were that were going to allow someone to survive and thrive. We don't have that level of confidence because of just how many forces are at work today. So I think that the opportunity to experiment, the opportunity to try different things and learn what's happening in Wyoming versus Massachusetts, what's happening in Maryland versus California, red states, blue states, purple states, I think actually that's okay because we're all trying to figure it out together and we can learn a lot from each other. That being said, what the Carnegie ETS partnership with this new initiative on skill-based assessments is really looking to do is that the first thing we're looking to do is to set up a common skills framework. Hmm. So what we want to have is a common vocabulary, a common approach to thinking about it so that there's interoperability so that when we're seeing a skill being assessed in New Mexico, we can say in Utah, ah, that, that's the type of skill that we're talking about. And so we're looking to have common definitions of skills. 
common ways to measure progression in the elementary, middle, high school years to start, common ways to be able to talk about what is the cut score and what does that mean, the, the sort of interoperability of that, so that we have some understanding of what educational activities are happening in one state or one school district are actually having an impact. So we want some opportunity for, for speaking uh, the same language um, as we move forward. So a common framework, but a lot of diversity to pick and choose, we think is a good thing. It seems super relevant that the, yeah, the ability to pick and choose, but then the ability to communicate across state lines, cross age barriers uh, and, and bands, whether you're in, in, in early uh, primary, secondary or higher ed or workplace, making sure that the communication channels are open vertically and horizontally. Um, how does it sit with, we've just spent the last 20 to 30 years in a heavily embedded standards-based movement that's teaching core literacy skills and all sorts of other things that are very content and some skills driven, especially in uh, NGSS, et cetera. And then we also have this whole set of technical skills represented in the CTE worlds, uh, what that could be coding or the trades or whatever the case may be. Do you see this as um, a, a third part of those two other parts or do you see it as supplanting and replacing those other parts? What's, what's the role of the standards that the country has spent a long time establishing um, and arguing about, obviously. What, what's the role there? I mean, you want to start and then we'll go to Tim. Yeah, no, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Tim. I, I, you know, I, I think that we, we, we're very much complementing uh, what's, what's out there. And what we're providing is an increasing emphasis on measurement, Nate. That's, that's the key at the skill level. And so it's not about content and it's not about generic uh, pieces of information or generic ways to do problem solving. It's really about being able to show that you have learned it to develop some level of mastery of a skill or of a group of skills. And so this focus, this heightened awareness and focus on really building common skill sets, common assessment frameworks. Um, and remember that in the world that we're now entering, our world of assessment is going through a lot of change as well. Um, the days of multiple choice questions, sitting and sweating it out in a paper and pencil form are rapidly changing. Computer-based testing, hybrid testing, uh, behavioral testing, where you use a video to record yourself doing a presentation and then submit it. And an AI-assisted program helps the teacher uh, score my presentation. That's the world that assessments is moving in. And so we want to be able to provide some new tools and new approaches, but we want to complement and really build on the good work that's been done in, in all of these areas. There's a ton of work in literacy and numeracy uh, that's really embedded into our assessment frameworks in K-12 and a ton of progress on digital literacy. I mean, if you look at the way that so many uh, different programs that teach software skills have really uh, developed a really clear approach to uh, different levels of coding language and then showing mastery through different types of tests, that's that's really started to become established. So we want to build on those um, and try to provide some common framework so that people can both downstream and upstream, both earlier in their career and later in their career, be able to show progression. So, Nate, I would just add, just to be clear, we, we still believe in algebra and reading. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't, don't get us wrong here. Um, what However, the, there are both connections to, to the core traditional academic disciplines 
and skills that we want to forge. So for example, if we know persistence is something that is highly valued in in post-secondary school and work, and yet we don't really have good measures. If I'm a student who gets to school every day on time and does his or her homework every single day across the disciplines, that those are measures of persistence that go unacknowledged largely, which we can elevate um, in, in, in ways that would um, create much richer pictures of the young people coming, coming through our educational system. So I totally, completely agree. This is not about supplanting. It's about supplementing. It's about, it's about building a richer picture of young people that we make legible, that they will want to, they will, there will be power in making that legible for them. Um, and, 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 and pressing the educational system to get at these core purposes of schooling that are reflected in these portraits. Uh, if, if you talk to state leaders about the portraits, the two things you hear consistently is they haven't changed what's happening in the schoolhouse. And we don't have a way to measure these things. We care about them. We know we care about them, but we don't know how to measure them or we don't have tools to measure them. So I think, I think this work um, can, can help propel the competency idea of education much more quickly. And, and while it's been going on forever around the margins in elegant schools and, and some school systems, um, it's never penetrated the mainstream. It's never been about the the whole system moving towards, um, authentic, uh, competency. Yeah, it seems like there's the I sometimes refer to it as the curse of the poster. So so a, a district will create a portrait of a graduate or a state and it ends up on the wall on a poster, but no one knows what to do with it. Everybody agrees that it's important, like you all are alluding to. But the trick is in is in those challenges. Identification, which we've talked about, um, how do you help provide learning experiences and then how do you assess it well? Um Tim, how does XQ, I know XQ was mentioned in this in the press release that you had. What elements, what role are they playing in this partnership? How are they involved as they think about redesigning the American high school as their primary mission? So we're we're partnered tightly with with XQ as as um some you know and some of your listeners know that the um we're working hard on learning experiences, on building learning zones where this kind of inside outside school learning would happen in a much more systematic way we're working on policy fronts on building the evidentiary base about why this matters for young people uh, and engaging with the post secondary sector so it's it it makes sense for for them um but the i think the short answer is th- that's all focused on the future of learning um and the transformation of high schools in order to to instantiate the future of learning, you have to think about the future of assessment, um, and and you have to do it in at, at a scale that's persuasive. Um, otherwise, the kind of learning we're after will stay around the edges of the profession. So, I, I, the 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 work is absolutely synchronized um, with our, our the partnership that Carnegie has with ETS is is in tight synchrony with with the work with XQ focused on on the future of learning. 
Right. That makes sense. And and I see three big organizations that all have big footprints that are able to impact and learn from, most importantly, those that they're they're working with and listen to those learners and, and teachers and, and educator leaders, et cetera. I mean, I want to we, we have a, just a few minutes left. I want to dig in uh, a little bit. ETS is is the expert in all things assessment. You've been doing this for years and years and years as an organization. Um, it. Is this something that when you talk to your to, to the scientists that are on your team, the, the statisticians and uh, psychometricians, are they saying, yeah, this is no problem. We've been thinking about this stuff for 50 years. We, it's finally an opportunity. Or is it brand new? And, the, and they're saying to themselves, how on earth do we do this? This is a great challenge, but we have a lot of learning to do. So has there been early experiments in trying to assess and evaluate these types of uniquely human skills that we've been talking about? Or are we starting with a clean slate here? Yeah, no, it's uh, we, we are building on several different areas of research and operational activity. Uh, so let me start with the, the research side. Uh, we have uh, been known for our research for, for decades. Uh, some of the most important breakthroughs in how assessments are done, item response theory, uh, the ways in which uh, group scores are established, um, how to define cut scores, um, meaning somebody that gets a, a five versus a four versus a three on a test. How how how, how are those uh, measured and determined? That the, the science behind that is still very much at play. What we're looking is we're 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 pointing to particular kinds of areas that we want to now measure that are less driven off of the content in the classroom or less driven off of particular entry requirements to get into say college, for example, or grad school, and really looking at the workplace. So I think one shift, Nate, that's becoming increasingly important for us is we're now looking at what do we anticipate in the next three to five years, and then in the five to 10 year range are gonna be the skills that matter the most. Because what's a job? A job is a bundle of skills. And we know that the half-life of most skills for most white collar jobs, um, and even blue collar jobs um, is shrinking. So the if, if, if I'm learning a new skill as an entry level employee, that skill um, has a half life of about four years. If it's a technology job, the half life is about two years. And so in this world of constantly changing skill requirements for jobs, we're seeing a huge opportunity for ETS to help employers, to help educational institutions, and then to help the individual by understanding what are the ways to demonstrate mastery of those skills. And so for us, that's very, very exciting. We've been working in uh, workforce development topics for years. Uh, we have a variety of tests that we do uh, that are in the English language assessment space. So for countries, particularly in Asia, uh, we are the standard for helping measure English proficiency in the work world. Uh, so that's work that we've been doing for years. Uh, with the OECD in Europe, uh, we've been working on a range of assessments around adult literacy. Uh, we are doing a lot of different types of work with different types of employers throughout the United States and elsewhere. So we have, over the last few years, uh, really decades, had extensive work in the skilling space. But now what's changing is that we're putting greater focus on it. Uh, we're also seeing these work skills as not relevant only for work, but also for higher ed and for K-12, because it's a skill. Uh, so that skill can happen in high school, it can happen in college, or it can happen when you're at work. Um, so a greater emphasis on work skills, 
a greater emphasis on seeing these skills cut across uh, all the areas. Um, we're also seeing a huge opportunity for us to double down on certain areas. One of the assessments that we have in the United States is Praxis. Uh, Praxis, of course, as you know, Nate, from your uh, experience in K-12, is an assessment that most teachers in the United States take to demonstrate proficiency to teach in class. Um, the vast majority of the 50 states have a requirement to take the praxis to, to be licensed to teach. And so we see this as a wonderful opportunity uh, to think about what are the kinds of skills that teachers would benefit from strengthening and certifying and demonstrating. And so that's an example of building off an existing assessment. Uh, we have TOEFL, the test of English as a foreign language, uh, which uh, students throughout the world take to demonstrate their English proficiency for admission to colleges, not only in the U.S., but also in Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. And again, looking at opportunities for communication skills and other types of important workplace skills to be measured. So we're embedding these kinds of skills into our existing assessments, doubling down and expanding our reach on work skills. Um, the last thing I'll mention that is new uh, to your question about what are we adding more focus on, we're adding a ton of focus, Nate, on the ways in which AI is changing everything. We have at ETS, um, an AI lab uh, that we've had for the last couple of years. We have over 100 individuals that are 100% dedicated to building capabilities with AI for assessment purposes. And so that's creating a whole new range of exciting possibilities. We've been using generative AI before it was cool. Um, and okay. so there's a lot of things we do in building our tests and delivering our tests and in scoring our tests where we leverage it. So there is still um, important work we still need to do. We are seeing this a partnership between ETS and Carnegie as really an opportunity for us internally at ETS to focus energy and resources on finding breakthroughs, Nate, because the, the, the research paradigm, the way we deliver, having much more focus on skills allows us to really move to a different world, less content-based, less of a, a traditional standardized test base, and much more focus on applied skills, behavioral skills, much more focus on affective and a whole range of other skills that people can start to measure, get certified for, and as I mentioned, get a transcript for or get some sort of a badge for so they can demonstrate that proficiency. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to make, an important point I wanted to make is that for both Tim and me, the vision that we are laying out is really a vision where we want to create more agency, more power for the individual. When they get a skill-based assessment result, they have agency. They, they have an opportunity to say, ah, here's where I measure on grit, for example, or persistence. And here's where I can measure, and here are the kinds of activities I could do. So rather than an assessment be at the end of learning, we like to think of it as being able to now be at the beginning of learning. Um, I got this score, and now I can work towards another micro course and act or learning activity to get to the next level. So it, rather than the assessment being for a higher ed institution or for an employer, um, those are important signals for them, but we really see these as signals for the individual. So smaller, shorter, uh, more holistic assessments, more tech-enabled, AI-enabled assessments, we think are really going to be huge. And, and in that way, this is a significant shift for even us at ETS, uh, moving towards much more the test taker at the center. Yeah, think about how much the learner, the test taker, will benefit from getting quick feedback on skills that they can apply right away rather than the system we have now, which is a much more test, delay, get results, uh, not actionable, et cetera. So we're we're at the end. Uh, I think we could talk for a long, long time because uh, I have so many more questions. Uh, I'd love to, to finish with um, first Tim and then Amit. Um, 
one succinct takeaway message for our listeners who have listened to this podcast, and then one person or organization you'd like to amplify that maybe not is a, a, an organization that doesn't get a lot of recognition, but is important in the education space. So uh, Tim, what do you have for us? Um, message, we need to build an educational system that's skills-based, that doesn't conflate time and learning or place and learning. Uh, uh, an amazing innovator, Fred Swanaker, uh, runs something called the African Leadership University, aims to educate three and a half million young people in the next 15 years, has completely turned upside down what the model of learning should look like for young people um, who finished secondary school. Um, highly experiential, lots of peer-to-peer -peer learning, about 5% of the experience is classroom-based. Worth keeping an eye on, Fred. Okay, I'm gonna look him up. Amit, what do you have for us? <laughs> I think in a nutshell, visualize a country in which we are able to all have ways to measure and ways to demonstrate skill progression. Think about just what that's going to do to create individual mobility, confidence, job prospects. I mean, it just changes the game when we see each other, not for uh, what we've done, but what we are and can be, and, and where um, the opportunity and the encouragement to pick up new skills, to learn new skills is really at the center where the skill becomes the new currency for American education and where we build our entire ecosystem of K-12 higher ed workforce on encouraging people to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm very inspired by that. And an organization that's in that space, um, Mastery Transcript, is an organization that's really doing exactly that. It's looking beyond the traditional transcript to more skill-based. And I think that could be an example of the kind of thing that we'd like to see happening across the country. Yeah, I appreciate that. We are good friends with the MTC crew and uh, know that there's a lot of intersections in our worlds with you all and what MTC is doing and how they're piloting across the country. And and really, they are building the relationships with higher ed to send out um, uh, proficiency-based and mastery-based transcripts. Thank you so much. Uh, I think a, a couple just key takeaways. This was uh, great, informative. I'm so excited. It gives me the chills to think about imagine the world that we are in a skills base rather than a time-based system. I, I think it opens up all sorts of pathways. I think it's more equitable, it is more transparent for learners, and then ideally makes it better for both higher ed and uh, employment for both the those going in and those institutions receiving those uh, individuals. And then the second thing I, I think that, um, I mean, you, you use the words, what is uniquely human? And I think we are approaching that really interesting discussion when we think about artificial intelligence, and its ability to produce and create is what are those things that are uniquely human and how do we help develop those and assess those uh, and help young people move forward and, and, and so that they're successful in their worlds in an increasingly complex, um, uh, uncertain uh, and, and volatile type uh, future. So thank you both so much. Real quick, if people want to get involved or learn more, uh, Amit, where can they go on your side and Tim, where on your side? 
on our site, uh, you know, come to uh, ETS.org. Uh, we've got a ton of information about the work we're doing on skill-based assessments. Folks who are listening out there, I hope you learned something about the movement that's happening and the right time and right place that it's happening to help all people learn and succeed. So thank you very much, uh, me. Thank you very much, Tim. And uh, appreciate all those folks who are listening out there. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.